Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Breaking Health Podcast. This is your host, Tom Salemi. Before I get into this week's episode, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Goodwin. Goodwin has one of the leading life sciences practices in the United States. Goodwin offers a full-service team of 100-plus lawyers serving over 400 life sciences clients. Goodwin provides industry expertise that is built to serve all legal needs of life sciences clients, including corporate, partnering, regulatory, intellectual property, and litigation. Thank you, Goodwin, for sponsoring the Breaking Health Podcast. All right, and we'll get into this week's Breaking Health Podcast. No Steve Cooper this week. I'm flying solo, but I'm joined by two guests who I hope will uh, fill the gap. I spoke with Kai Worrell and Kristen Shardlow. They're both with Worrell, a design firm in Minneapolis. Kai is the CEO. Kristen Shardlow is the Director of User Experience. And Worrell has been working with medtech firms for decades to help them design better tools that uh, doctors can use more effectively in the treatment of patients. They're now moving into the patient experience. Uh, They're continuing to work with uh, healthcare professionals, but they're also trying to understand how patients can better interact with medical devices. So it was a great conversation to understand how they're trying to understand the application of tools like Alexa and Google Voice into the healthcare process. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kai Worrell and Christian Shardlow of Worrell in Minneapolis. Well, Kai Worrell and Christian Shardlow, welcome to the podcast. Nice to Thank you. We're trying to do with the, with the MedTech conference and with the podcast, we're trying to talk to um, folks who work with MedTech companies, but necessarily, aren't necessarily CEOs or, or VCs, but certainly impact the development of, of MedTech and, and guide MedTech innovation. And that's why I wanted to talk to Aurel. I had the pleasure of stopping by your offices uh, during Startup Week a couple of weeks ago when I was there for our steering committee, Kai, and uh, you were nice enough to sit down and, and sort of lay out the land a bit. But I want to get into all the neat stuff you're working on, and we talked a lot about that while I was there. But first, I think it would benefit everyone if you just gave us a, a brief history of the, of the firm. Sure, sure. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, well, Worrell was founded by, back in 1976 by Bob Worrell, who's my father. Mm-hmm. And um, he's an industrial designer and a pretty uh, well-known guy. Um, one of the things that ties us to the medtech community is Bob was designing medical devices back in the 70s with guys like Earl Bakken and Walt Lillehei and Bob Castor, you know, in the early incarnations of St. Jude, uh, now Abbott, of course, and Medtronic and, and, and the way that those companies developed. And as those companies were starting to really hit their stride and and, and bring a lot of new therapies to market, they started realizing that industrial design was um, was necessary. It was nice to have products that looked and functioned really elegantly. So we were designing a lot of products, but medical device has always been a key part of our uh, our history, and today it makes up 100% of what we're doing. That's outstanding. How has uh, the demands for design changed over those 40 years? And I, and I know that's a, that's a big question, but... I have to think what the the, the uh, boxes you had to check off in the seventies and eighties are a, a whole lot more different than uh, than today. But and, and we'll get into some of the specific areas. But just in terms of the design and the look of a, of a product, 
do you need to make something look more like an iPhone these days than a medical device? Sure. I think there's been an evolution towards trying to make even surgical instruments that are used in an OR by specialists more elegant. And it's not always just that they need to be aesthetically impactful, although as designers we're doing that. We're also thinking a lot about usability um, and minimizing steps and making things just uh, as elegant as they can be. And um, one, of the, one of the main changes, I guess, has really occurred in the last 10 years or so, and that's the fact that just every device that's cleared or approved through the FDA now requires a usability file, a human factors study to demonstrate that it's safe, both for the people using the device as well as for the patient. So that's a new level of rigor that uh, a lot of designers have been incorporated into their practice to really think about what we're doing and how um, not only does the device function, but is it really safe and accommodate some of the things that people might use or misuse that are hard to anticipate until you start getting a lot of people interacting with the product out in the field. So that means that a device has to be looked at or the design has to be looked at in a way to prevent uh, mistakes from happening, to really make sure that the, the different features are, are clearly marked? Or what goes into that, that human factors uh, product? I love that term, human factors. Yeah, yeah, it is an elegant one. And it's one that you know designers have used for a long time, but the FDA embraced um, back in the 90s and really um, became a requirement in uh, 2007 is when the guidance was issued. Um, really, the issue is that you know if you think about how products are evaluated. They're done in, um, they're, they're looked at in the context of a clinical trial. So you've got people who are experts and you're trying to control every element of the study that you can. Uh, but what happens, and, and really the, the, the key case example here is, is um, the infusion pump. You know, these devices are studied and designed with a certain intent, and then all of a sudden you put them out into the field and you've got thousands of people using these devices and people make mistakes, things that you didn't necessarily intend. And, and so the FDA said, look, this is causing an issue. Um, you know, there, there are, there's patient harm, and, and a lot of times healthcare practitioners are being injured using devices. It, it became so prevalent that they decided this had to be one of the key dimensions of how they looked at, not um, uh, at safety, in fact. And so um, they said, look, you, it's one thing to do a clinical trial, but outside of a clinical trial, you have to show us that you've tried this with users, naive and experienced users, and you need to show us that... Um, you've considered all the ways that somebody might misuse a product. And once you've considered that, you've done a risk assessment on how people might actually misuse a product that you've, in fact, come up with mitigations, either through the design or the training or instructions. Um, you've, you've, you've done a sufficient job in showing that this device is as safe as it can be versus the intended benefits that it will bring about. So human factors took on a uh, a, a tone that was really safety related, not just necessarily comfort, ergonomics, and and um, and and just pure, you know, um, intuitive use. Interesting. So, when does Rorel become involved in the process of developing a new device, and 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 how does that compare to years past? Are you involved much earlier in in the creation of a, a product than than you once were? Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Um, I think a lot of a lot of sophisticated product development teams have realized both all the things I just mentioned around usability, but also, um, you know, with with you know, one of the other major things that's happened in healthcare, of course, is that the burden of cost is being pushed onto both medical device manufacturers, any anybody in the supply chain, but also hospital systems, looking for ways to um, put the healthcare. Um, uh, user, the, the patient and the family at the center and, 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 and require more there. And so in saying that, um, 
we've, we've really thought a lot about how patients are really going to experience something. So uh, most product development teams are looking at uh, tools like ethnographic research, actually going into patients' homes, especially with chronic disease, heart failure, and diabetes, and neurodegenerative disorders that, um, you know, we're able to treat uh, in so many different ways therapeutically. Um, we're spending a lot of time, um, you know, right on the front line of healthcare, looking at how those diseases are managed today and incorporating those kinds of thoughts and insights into the product development process. So um, that's quite early, frankly. That might be right alongside when things are happening on, on the bench or, or in a preclinical lab. Um, but in fact, uh, these teams are recognizing that um, getting closer and closer to the end user, whether that's a surgeon or a patient, is really quite critical to making really good early design choices. Kristen, how, how do you get the patient involved uh, in, in this process? Uh, do you have your, your clinical trials, quote unquote, where you're working with patients in advance to know how they look at things, to, to understand uh, how they might uh, interact or engage with, with the device? Or, or what is that process like to really secure an understanding of what the, the patient, uh, how the patient sees a device? Right. Well, what you're describing there sounds a lot like what Kai was just alluding to with uh, what we call kind of phase zero ethnographic research, where we want to start um, at the ground floor, really, and understand what the user's needs are before we make presumptions or assumptions. And so that's where our research team is usually most involved. But I'm proud to say that at Wara we have, uh, for a long time, practiced sort of a partnership approach where a designer, whether an industrial designer or someone from my team, user experience design or interface design, will accompany an experienced researcher out into the field. So we are literally in the trenches, so to speak, face-to-face with the patients who will be using the end solution, whatever it is that we come up with. And so what that often looks like is um, going to someone's home and spending, you know, even three-plus hours having an in-depth conversation, looking around their living space, understanding where they put their medication or their health supplies or their devices and how they manage them and just getting a really full, complete picture of what it's like to live their life with their disease. And that fuels us creatively and also with the kind of objective information that we need to go back to, you know, our creative space here in our studio and start sketching and ideating and really kickstart that whole process. So that happens. The engagement with patients is literally step one. And then as you follow along the product development cycle, we're often back in the field with them again uh, through iterative rounds of testing. This is all part of that human factors sort of regulated approach to product development that we follow. So frequent interaction with the end user is key. And as we get farther along, then we're putting more and more um, articulated prototype concepts in users' hands, and that is also an excellent way for us to gain insight around what they need and how they're going to use a, a device or a tool that we, that we designed for them. Interesting. Do medical devices, do, do you try to make them look more like a consumer device, like an iPhone, as I said earlier, or, or something else? Or do you get a sense from your interaction with patients that something that, that cures a disease or, or, or relieves pain needs to look like, needs to look different, needs to look like a medical device, needs to have a different feel than a remote control on a TV or, or uh, a, a tablet? That's a really good question. Kai, do you want to take a first stab at that? Sure. Well, I think that there's um, a lot of different scenarios that we're designing for, but ultimately, um, 
you know, there, there's a certain elegance I think we've seen in a lot of consumer products and a lot of functionality. And I think that that's, as designers, often a really great place for us to start in terms of the expectation, not just for patients, but for clinicians. Um, they're looking for seamless experiences. And one of the things we talk about is trying to take the friction out of a user experience. So whatever we can do to remove steps um, that makes it easier for someone to interact with the product is really critical. And I think that's what you see in so many of the consumer products that we um, are commonly interacting with is just that they're so accessible right there at our fingertips. It's probably talk, that's probably a perfect um, reason why we're, we're looking at some of these new technologies like, um, like Alexa and Google Home because they are con um, uh, consumer technologies, but, they're, but, um, but they can be used in, in uh, medical applications. And there are, um, there are a lot of big companies in the consumer space, Google and Amazon, uh, Microsoft that are moving into healthcare pretty rapidly. But in terms of the actual look and feel, um, I think there's something to making something look very trustworthy. So I don't think we're always shooting for a consumer electronic aesthetic. I think we're trying to do something um, that would be both minimal, easy to use, but also represent sort of the durability and function that you would expect out of something that has a clinical promise behind it. Well, that's a great point about uh, about Alexa and, and all the, the, the networking that's going on within our homes. I think up until well, a year or two ago, I think the, the digital health component of medtech might have been a more passive sensor that, that collected information and transmitted it to a doctor without the patient really being engaged. Now you've got the opportunity through these devices that can, can literally talk to someone in their home to really activate the patient and have them become more involved. I know this is a, a passion project of yours. What, uh, what are you seeing in, in that space, in the, the use of Alexa and other voice-activated technology? And, and how do you see that impacting medtech going forward? Sure. Well, I can maybe start in on that. And Kristen has been working um, really diligently in these patient studies that we've done. We're on, on, on to our fourth study at the moment, using Alexa um, as a tool to engage with patients in their home. Um, and, and it started quite uh, in a quite a humble fashion, to be honest with you, Tom. I mean, you know, as as we talked about at, at, the, at the beginning of the conversation, we're spending so much time in patients' homes, um, and we're always looking for better and better ways to study them. And so it might be a home visit, but we also a lot of times are leaving video cameras, little flip cams and vids uh, behind them uh, with them so that they can report things to us over weeks or months even. And it's all part of that, that um, journey that we're trying to uncover you know, what's it like to go to the physician's office? What are you doing day in and day out? How is a Monday morning different than a Saturday morning? All those things that are really uh, tough to get at if you're, um, if you're not being clever about how you're collecting information. And so, you know, we, we picked a, a pretty big uh, topic area. We picked diabetes. Um, diabetes is, is a heavy disease. And if you've ever spent any time with someone or have someone in the family with diabetes or have a child with diabetes, you realize the gravity of the circumstances. Mm -hmm how constant it is, an effort to try to manage A1C, um, you know, your blood sugar, you know, through activity and diet and, and sleep patterns and, and, and medication. It's complex for anyone. And, and we thought, you know, while the gravity or the issue in healthcare really is um, you, you may only have eight minutes or 10 minutes with a care provider every quarter, every six months, maybe even every, once a year, you're really not given a lot of time of active listening and exchange. And what could we do to change that? Could we use a voice assistant, a smart, empathetic voice that would um, come alongside you, prompt you, remind you, help you set goals and, and 
take on some of that burden with you and the family in terms of managing the disease. Mm -hmm. That was the aspiration. And um, to get there, we had to learn some pretty basic things around how to program a, a conversation. Um, Alexa is a great tool. Just, just um, another thing that's really kind of neat about this is you can buy these devices for 35 or $37 a piece, really inexpensive little Echo Dot. And now Google Home, we're working with that as well, and they've got a real low-cost device as well. So the, the technology has become robust. The cost has become really, really attractive and low. And uh, then the next ingredient is learning how to actually work with the technology, and that's where Kristen and her team really took the, uh, took the charge and, uh, and, and started to create something that ultimately yielded our first study with patients. We're going to take a quick break from this conversation to remind you to use your special, very special, Be Health code when you're registered to attend the Digital Health Innovation Summit, which is happening on November 30th in Boston. Type in the letter B, the word health, smush them together, and you'll save yourself a whole lot of dough. So that's a great way to show your love for the podcast and, of course, to save a little bit of money. We this week announced the list of uh, attending companies, so you can check out who will be in the room when it happens, and I'm sure you'll be as impressed as I was. Tune in next week. We'll have another big announcement regarding the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. Now let's get back into this conversation. Kristen, go into the, the studies a bit and, and give us a, a look ahead. Uh, how do you see this playing out in MedTech, the, the use of Alexa and Google Home uh, over the next five years or so? Wow. Well, I mean, when we're talking about digital health and the speed at which all of this is unfolding, I, it's hard to even think that far ahead. I think we're going to be experiencing changes we can barely imagine even in the next year or two. I think we have some stats on like uh, the changing kind of nature of how we interact with technology and get some reputable statistics that indicate that as early as next year, well over 30% of all interactions with digital media are going to be voice um, initiated. So just think about that for a wow. second and all the ways that we, you know, input data or information or, or call up information and that um, that trend is just shooting upward. So it's more a question of what is it not going to impact. You know, here, the projects that we're running to date or have run to date, we're, we're really exploring kind of knocking around all the different corners and avenues, um, whether it's voice-enabled device, you know, um, and, and what application within healthcare. And we're looking at chronic disease management. We're looking at supporting clinical trials through voice engagement. And... Um, so we're exploring the technology even as it's changing in real time. So it's a very exciting kind of ride to be on and also to theorize about what the future looks like. I do feel very confident from where we are today that voice is more than just a modality. What we're finding is that voice, there's something really unique and special about just the fact that it is voice, that it's not the mobile phone that we interact with typically by, you know, touching with kind of fat fingers and tiny little keyboard, whatever it is we want it to do or what we want to tell it. Mm -hmm. You know, that was pretty liberating when it was first released 10 years ago, iPhone. It was literally life-changing. And I'm fully convinced that we're going to see equally, if not greater, impacts here because we've found already inklings of in our research is that voice has a power to do more than just listen, 
to your voice and to communicate back, that there's a quality in essence that, that exists in the transfer. So um, Kai's alluding to this, that you know, it can be in your home and actually listening to you. That can fill a role that's currently you know, underserved. So you need somebody to be there to hear, to listen, to record, to scribe. Um, but there's a, almost a therapeutic value just in, in that alone. Or the fact that Alexa is prompting you as an end user to vocalize. And when you do that, there's something that happens in your brain, in your consciousness, or how you think about things, or how you're experiencing life changes because you've spoken it aloud. Mm-hmm. And these are the, the things that you know, I'm, I'm most excited about because they are directly going to impact patient experience. But then again, there's all these different ways that you think about um, voice control in an operating room, for example, um, different ways that practitioners could leverage voice. But I think it's safe to say that healthcare is not going to be the same. That's that's you're right. It's it's hard to look five years. Five years is always the the number you pull out of your head. But but you know I didn't have an Alexa two years ago. I don't even know if I knew what it was two years ago. So who knows where we're going to be in five years? So so how do you how do you see this? Um, if I'm a, a med tech CEO of a of a company with a an early stage cardio device, I might say that this does not impact me. But I guess you could see this sort of playing a role in clinical trials or, or other things where you really need to keep in touch with the patient and, and track their performance. I mean, if if you're just a, a if you're a CEO of a of a of a quote unquote typical med tech startup, do you still need to have some sort of strategy or at least have this type of technology on your your radar going forward uh, just to be aware of it and, and perhaps at some point included in, in your own plans? Yeah, um, I, I think it's a germane topic to just about anybody in the healthcare ecosystem that's trying to impact outcomes. Um, it's really hard to separate a healthcare conversation when, with, without talking about the economic and uh, clinical outcomes that you're going to impact by introducing a new therapy or a diagnostic. So to the extent that um, there's a new um, cardiac therapy and there's cardiac rehab behind that and uh, there's finding the right patients to bring into that trial and make sure that they're ready, um, there's, you know, it's really easy to think about what's going on in an OR or in a cath lab. Maybe it's not easy, but, you know, it's easy to get focused on that. Um, but really, you know, for the, the person who's living with that disease, their life is, is 24-7 on the present, and there's a whole cath care pathway. The spine of time goes right through that event that you're trying to design for, that healthcare intervention, and it has a, has a, um, a beginning and an end, and it keeps going. And, and the relapse, remission, or kind of the remission um, of, of coming back into the hospital for ongoing care is also something that clearly the FDA and uh, payers, the CMS, are trying to reel in. So I think, you know, if you put that lens on um, any intervention, you're going to start thinking about what it means to engage with the patient um, and their family and the care team more broadly and how that care coordination is going to occur. And if you look at that, it's a stressed, it's a very stressed environment. Uh, We just don't have enough healthcare practitioners to provide the level of care um, that, that most of these complex diseases require. It's also easy to think about a disease as just that, one mm-hmm. thing, one, one modality, where most patients are more complicated than that. They're, they're comorbid. They have three or more diseases. Um, and so, you know, if they're a cardiac patient, they probably also have diabetes. They're probably dealing with uh, metabolic disorders of some kind. Um, 
they could have inflammatory disease. Th these are the things that confound uh, us when we think about, you know, trying to create a solution. So really the, the essence of all of this is to go right into the home where um, healthcare used to be practiced. And um, we can't really do that with humans. It's just not really scalable, not here in the U.S. and certainly not in more populous places in the world. So it's really exciting to think about a voice, an empathetic voice, a low-cost medium to communicate with people and, um, and get smarter with each conversation because that's what we do. Um, we, can, we can find out how you were feeling yesterday, what symptoms you were, you're having, where you were in your care regimen, what your medications were. Um, what your interactions with a healthcare practitioner were, and we can accrue that information and keep designing better and better questions and conversations. Great point. What are some other technologies that um, we need to be aware of? If, if I'm against putting on my, my MedTech CEO cap, you know, obviously we, we follow uh, discussions in virtual reality. We had also VR on a few episodes ago, and they've got an exciting uh, virtual reality technology for uh, for training uh, surgeons, but I, I have to think there's many more applications for, for that sort of tech. What are you folks seeing in that space, and, and where might that be going in a few years? Quite a lot. We, um, we have a team of people that sit in what we call our black box laboratory. It's just a, it's a space that we built with a virtual reality lab and, and a bunch of other equipment back there that will support our technical team. We're all historically... Um, has been doing you know, a lot of hardware and design and development, and now we're hiring software programmers at a pretty nice clip. And those folks are really trying to answer the exact question you just added, where is this all going? And, and one of the things they're very, very passionate about is augmented reality. Um, the idea that um, voice is, is really powerful, and it's here and it's present, and it's gotten to that point of maturity that it's really realistic to start talking about and using. But right around the corner, um, are all of these tools that actually use voice, but they just combine visual um, inputs as well. So um, there's the Microsoft HoloLens that's out there right now, and you can put that on and you can command it with your voice and with your gesture and with your gaze. So where you're looking and where, what you're doing with your hands, all control it. Um, and it gives you realistic images overlaid on your environment. And we're using that for um, surgical planning and surgical interventions in the OR, um, surgical navigation applications really exciting stuff. So there's some Skunk Works uh, projects that we have going with large medical device companies as well as on our own to explore how these things are coming. That technology is um, maybe one step behind in terms of its cost and its durability and uh, how reliable it is. Um, but you can see that it's there. You can come into Royal and get a demonstration and it's pretty remarkable what you can see when you try it. Kind of like that also VR that uh, you're, you're mentioning. We have that here at Royal also and you can jump into a virtual reality environment and start operating on a patient and with instruments and have a very realistic experience. So I think it's not just the training. I think it's actually going to, you're going to see augmented reality tools, uh, glasses, and other um, really exciting technologies that people are going to be using in the OR to um, bring expertise and, and, um, and in fact, reduce variability in these procedures um, so that we're learning from one case to the other, from one surgeon, surgeon and one surgical team to the other, and, um, and using augmented reality to um, improve outcomes long-term. Kristen, do you see this technology being used uh, at, at the home as well for healthcare purposes, or is that, uh, is that asking too much? I'm having a hard time imagining how that might happen, but that's... It's not my job, it's yours. <laughs> is this something that we could see in the home in having 
healthcare purposes? We're talking about augmented, right? Yes. Or VR. You know, this is an interesting one for me. Um, I I kind of have an interesting position on this for somebody who's in UX uh, world. I'm actually very kind of tech averse until I'm convinced that it has a really useful application and. Um, and I would say I'm tech agnostic. I'm really focused on how it's going to improve improve my life or improve the lives of the, the people I work on behalf of. So it's augmented. It's been tricky to date because the equipment required has been very cost prohibitive. And, you know, if you're talking about a $3,000 headset and some pretty complex software to set up, you know, that's really a different proposition than what we're talking about with an Alexa Echo Dot for 35 bucks, and, and now just in the last month, a, a proliferation of new devices that are available, all of them really gorgeous and user-friendly and minimal setup required, et cetera. But I have been kind of watchfully um, observing this field, kind of this new tech unfold in terms of the virtual and the augmented, and it's, what's most exciting is that we're learning that all of this is going to be on the phone very much in the near term. So HoloKit has been released. Um, the, the cameras in our phones are built to accommodate. And so now we're kind of in that brainstorming phase, just like we were when we uh, kind of launched our Alexa initiative uh, well over a year ago now where we were dreaming up a future. And so that's kind of where we are, dreaming up a future. Is there a place for this in the home? The answer is definitely yes. And then the layer that we're working through is how can we make it really useful? Mm-hmm. So not just the technology for technology's sake, but a way to really impact outcomes or impact the, the quality of care, the cost of care delivery. And so that's, that's kind of where we are now in terms of, of the AR in particular. I'm with the, I'm with you on uh, on technology. I like to uh, I'm a I'm usually a next to last adopter, if not the last adopter. But uh, <laughs> but in, in healthcare, of course, we have to be we have to be particularly careful. But so, final question to you, Kristen. I, I just and Kyle, you can obviously chime in as well. But how are the patients? You you talked about what you're doing to to work with the patients to to collect information. But I wonder how they respond to the the notion that you know, their, their, their healthcare devices are getting smarter and getting more interactive and getting more personal. Is there an excitement and an enthusiasm that yes, finally, you know, this is going to be easier for us to manage? Is there skepticism? How, how do regular folks sort of view these movements? Well, in my experience and Kai chime in, um, people have been very positive. I would say, uh, really excited about the notion that they could have a closer connection with their physician. Everyone feels that, you know, their health is really important and the relationship with their care team, they, especially the more acute they become, the more they, you know, prioritize that communication and um, that contact. And we know from our research and ample studies out there, they're just, they're, we're talking mere minutes that they have with their doctor and the amount of information that needs to be exchanged or ascertained by the physician in that interaction. I think they're craving more personalized attention. They're craving a listening ear. And I think that in specific terms around this device and the, you know, the packaging you see it in, specifically the Echo Dot that we've used in our studies, it does happen to be a consumer product. So that just makes it very approachable. And, um, they kind of know how to use it. They've seen it in use, maybe, or even if they never have, every user in our study so far has been a naive 
user have never used they had never used a voice assistant before, not even on their phones. So what's really cool is to watch them kind of light up when we explain to them how it works and what they're going to be doing, and um, even some of the patients who would be typically more not as savvy or able to use a smartphone or mobile app, maybe they haven't even adopted that type of tech yet, they're taking to this voice technology so easily and, and I would say enthusiastically. I think they're excited about the prospect of what it can offer them, and they're just delighted by the experience with using it. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, what I would add to that is um, it's just that, that, you know, a lot of times there's concern around what an older population might do with a newer technology like this. And so, of course, in our studies, we've made, uh, made sure to recruit kind of an evenly dispersed demographic um, and age population. So what we, what we did is we took folks in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even 70s. Uh, we might have even had a couple of folks in their 80s in, in, the, in one of the studies. And the question was, you know, are those um, people in the older um, age brackets experiencing this technology differently? If so, how? And and. and you know, it's been really interesting. You know, you see that, um, that these, these interactions aren't perfect yet. We've been learning a lot. So, you know, sometimes the Alexa times out or maybe doesn't pick up perfectly what you're saying or someone else is talking over. So there's, there's, there's real issues still that need to be addressed in terms of usability and, and how we build these um, applications for voice. But what we've found is that um, the, the, the folks in the older age brackets are really a lot more accommodating. They're more likely to think they've done something wrong and be a little bit more lenient or patient with the technology um, than younger folks who are growing up with this and assume that all of this is going to happen and uh, maybe are a little less impatient and want the technology to be more robust than it is today. So it's kind of interesting to see that phenomenon, and you can see that um, actually engaging with voice uh, takes away some of the usability issues of dexterity and vision, and so it really solves some of those issues, but people are generally pretty excited. They're just excited that they're um, getting a voice tool like this and that they're being heard. So um, that halo effect from Alexa and Google, uh, what we're seeing in terms of hype in the marketplace is, is carrying over into these studies in the sense that um, people are excited that they're getting a tool like this and that, uh, and that they're being included um, in, in the consideration set for how, how they might be served better in the future. Terrific. That's lots of exciting stuff. It's great to hear there are many ways that, uh, that MedTech is becoming more user-friendly. So it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see where we are in two years or three years or five years. So thank you both for the, uh, the sneak peek into the future. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. It's been our pleasure. Well, that's a wrap, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Break Health Podcast. Thank you, Kai Worrell. Thank you, Christian Shardlow of Worrell, for joining us on the podcast and for explaining your work in uh, helping patients interact more effectively with healthcare and medical devices. I hope you folks on the Break Health Podcast enjoyed this conversation. If you love this podcast as much as I do, do a few favors, will you? Give us a ranking on iTunes. That's always a help. If you wouldn't mind telling your friends about the podcast, that'd be huge. And if you could shoot me an email, let me know how we're doing. Tom at healthogy.com. That's the word health followed by the letters E G Y. Com. Also, if you haven't subscribed, please do. You'll have this great content sent to your listening device each and every week. That's it, folks. Don't forget to use your B Health code to register for the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. Helps you show a little love for the podcast and to save yourself a little bit of money. 
The conference will be on November 30th in Boston. The agenda is up at healthag.com. And uh, it's going to be a great day. So we hope to see you there at the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit on November 30th in Boston.